listening to the Top Music Guitar Podcast, the show for guitar teachers to learn about the craft of teaching great guitar lessons that students love. If you're looking to start or expand your studio and make guitar teaching your full-time dream job, you've come to the right place. Each week, you'll get to hear from some of the top guitar teachers from around the globe and get their best tips and experiences so you too can build your own dream studio. I'm your host, Michael, and I've founded one of the top guitar schools in Australia, written a best-selling curriculum, and I mentor guitar teachers. I'm excited to share my expertise with you and the wisdom of all the experts we interview. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Let's get into it. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Top Music Guitar Podcast. I've got a real treat for you today, a special guest with a huge number of contributions to the guitar playing world and of course the world of guitar teaching. He comes from England, he's been described as one of the best players in the local music scene over there and his you know, track record of professional gigs, professional tours and contributions to guitar magazines, being a teacher at BIM, the British and Irish Modern Musical Institute, a guitar player I believe for the Ronan Keating Band, He's played for Rod Stewart and even Lily Allen, to name a few, and the recent author of a brand new book. Guys, let's welcome to the podcast, Steve Olsworth. Welcome, Steve. Uh, really, yeah, hi. Really good to be here. Very happy to, uh, to help out and, and share some of my story. Absolutely. Really, really, really nice to help out some of your listeners. Fantastic. Well, we're really happy to have you here and thank you so much for coming on. Can you give the listeners a brief overview of your story so far? Maybe you transition from, you know, a guitar player and a touring musician to being an author of a book and, you know, a contributor to numerous guitar related publications. I wouldn't say it's necessarily a transition. I guess the author is the final thing that I've sort of moved into lately, but uh, I've been teaching and touring and writing for magazines probably for the best part of 20 years now which is pretty scary. It's gone very quickly. But um, when I first started teaching, I was doing standard kind of peripatetic teaching in schools, teaching little kids uh, in primary schools and, you know, doing assemblies and all that kind of stuff. So, so early sort of career, I was doing uh, teaching in schools and then I sort of transitioned into teaching at home. So your, your kind of standard setup, you know, teaching individual lessons. And at the same time, I got a gig with Total Guitar. At the time, this was quite a new magazine in, in the UK. And, uh, well, well, we can talk a bit about that later on. So I was kind of doing both things at the same time, and I kind of kitted out my home studio and, and went down that route at the same time. And then gradually over time, I sort of progressed into to bigger schools. And eventually I started working. There's a place called the Academy of Contemporary Music, which is still in existence in Guildford in the UK and I was one of the one of the main music colleges at the time catering for sort of diploma higher diploma uh, and performance and that's kind of where my interest eventually ended up being and I guess at the time I was doing the gigs with, with Ronan Keating and did a lot of TV shows and, and all this kind of stuff so I guess eventually my career has sort of transitioned into sort of perf- performance-based guitar playing, I suppose, although I teach everything for sure, but I guess that's where my speciality is. And then, uh, so that's been, yeah, like I said, the best part of 20 years. And then the, the, the writing for a book thing has sort of been the latest addition to my, to my repertoire, I suppose you could say. So that's, 
yeah, that's a that's a positive history of the last twenty years. So, yeah, fantastic. So it must have been a very very cool journey for you. You mentioned you know preparing people for you know performance. So is that like uh, the students you do cater to are kind of like those high level players going on to be professional musicians and people with you know more serious aspirations? Yeah, I would say it's half and half. It's I mean. I think it's always a mistake to kind of assume that all my students want to do what I want to do, what I wanted to do. And I think students are changing a little bit as well uh, with the advent of social media and stuff. I think uh, maybe like 10 years ago, a lot more students were wanting to be session musicians, whatever that means, because I think it, it doesn't exist. How, you know, my, my thought of the kind of Steve Lukather thing, I think that model doesn't exist anymore. So in terms of performance, I teach the sort of physical aspects of it as well as the technique and how to get a good sound and how to deal with nerves and all, all of the stuff that you essentially deal with when you're, when you're being a performing and gigging musicians, all these kind of things that you pick up over the years from, from playing functions to, to big uh, sort of arena gigs, I guess, yeah, I try and pass on that knowledge, I guess. Yeah, and it's obviously a very different approach to teaching in terms of, uh, you know, here's how you play guitar. It's more like how you know you, now you can play guitar. Here's how you perform guitar or take it to that next level. And what advice would you give to, um, you know, people who are aspiring guitar players who want to, you know, go out and try whatever the new model is, you know, whether it's the, you know, the YouTube rap. There seems to be a lot of uh, people creating their own little niches and networks within specific subgenres of guitar playing. And I think one of my personal favorites is, Either the the like the death metal camp that's recently discovered Alan Holdsworth and Frank Gambale and like now there's jazz fusion inside of death metal which I think is awesome and also like the neo soul kind of uh, movement which is you know totally awesome as well so it's like instrumental shred has been reborn in its own little you know online niche. Sure, it's it's super interesting and I think it obviously evolves all the time. So I think uh, yeah, trying to trying to keep on top of the latest trends. I mean, I say trends, but it's, I think it's a, a positive thing. And uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of conversations I've been having recently about a lot more kind of female guitar players in the sort of wider performing sphere, which is which is amazing because I've sort of I'm sort of, I've witnessed that transition in the classroom, but also online as well. So um, yeah. Uh, what was sorry? What was the original question again? I went off on can't, a can't even remember if there was an original question because I got went off on a tangent as well. But yeah, it was something to do with there's so many subgenres popping up. Um, but for aspiring yeah. you know guitar players, you know if they want to make it as a guitar player or they want to become a professional guitar player, what what do you think that even involves these days? Well, in some ways, I think it's it's a lot harder than it was when I was starting out for sure. But that being said. You know, I look at all the barriers that are there potentially and, and social media is quite a hard game for sure. But I think there are also a lot more opportunities to get your music out there and, and, and essentially put your music in the hands of other people and, and, and get gigs. Yeah, it's a, it's a balancing act. I mean, I, I always worry about the lack of venues. I mean, here in the UK, it's like in Australia, but we've lost a lot of great live music venues. So I kind of worry about the next generation having the opportunity to perform. Uh, it still exists, obviously, but I think it, it can be a little bit harder. So I'm still, you know, I still kind of bang that drum about, you know, you need to go out there and perform and play. That's probably the best teaching, you know, beyond what I can actually, you know, impart myself. So, yeah, I mean, 
it's it's a it's it's always a balancing act. This is the thing I talk to a lot of students lately, and uh, um, certainly with social media, they know a lot of uh, concepts. And what I find is that I'm often filling in the gaps in knowledge that exist. And I think that's partly to do with learning from social media. Not that it's a bad thing. I think it's a great thing. I think for sure a lot of students are learning concepts so they can like zoom up and down the fretboard and not really understand how to apply that in a musical way in, their own, in, in, a, in a musical setting. So I think, um, yeah, like I said, it's always, it's always evolving. So it's sort of keeping on top of that, I think, and, and, and having a look at what's happening. Yeah. And, and you know, with social media, YouTube, even TikTok and Instagram and things like that, you know, there's never been this amount of resources available to anyone anywhere in the world, you know, all at once. There's just so much stuff out there. Uh, and fortunately slash unfortunately, you know, with the pandemic, anyone with a camera uh, who was stuck at home became a teacher. So there's been some great stuff. Um, the fact that I was getting guitar lessons off Scott Henderson, one of my all-time favorite guitar players, you know, during lockdown, he's just like, hey, I'm stuck at home, like started teaching. But there's also, you know, tons and tons of really, I wouldn't say bad content, but people who mean well, but again, hey, you've got to learn this. And they skip like, you know, straight to level 10 or straight to level 20. I'd say it's like, you know, going to the gym and just trying to do a 100 kilo bench press in your first go. And it puts a lot of people out. So, yeah, knowing or having a, like a, a journey to follow and knowing where certain things are along the way can go a long way towards um, helping people develop not necessarily that you have to develop in a linear way all the time, but at least not, not missing important critical things and, you know, and end up being a frustrated player who can play really fast, but you don't have any feel or, yeah, you, know, you don't know how to improvise through changes and you're just super technically focused. And, you know, I'm not making a case for feel playing versus uh, speed playing here, but I think a lot of people through not having a teacher and just cherry picking what's cool as opposed to sometimes the less interesting, less satisfying theoretical concepts or fundamental skills you need to pick up, they can really do themselves a great disservice and, you know, uh, leave a lot of gaps in their playing through ignorance. Yeah, totally. I, I, I totally agree. And, uh, I think this is where teachers play such an important role. I mean, they've always played an important role as far as I'm concerned, but now it's, it's helping. I almost feel it's like helping to, uh, cause it's quite difficult to disseminate all the, all the information you can, you can learn anything these days, literally anything. But being able to disseminate what's good from the bad and yeah like i said my thing is always about the application of, of knowledge and uh, and that's what i'm finding I, I actually found like a lot of my teaching is sort of transitioning into mentoring lately so i'm kind of mentoring students through their journey as opposed to teaching them the very very specifics i'm almost at because i teach a lot of university students they're almost at the later end of their tuition so they've gone through kind of school teaching and and the sort of formative learning. Uh, but nevertheless, I'm still finding a lot of gaps in knowledge for sure, which is, which is really interesting. You know? Yeah. And it's great to hear from, you know, the perspective of you often, and it is an assumption on my behalf, but when you're at a tertiary level, you know, people generally come in at a certain point and, you know, you, you've got clay that's already, you know, warm and ready to be molded and you just, you know, run with it. So sometimes the, the most enjoyable students to teach are those guys because they've already got great practice habits and good work ethic. What's it like, you know, dealing with, you know, what I would say, you know, the cream of the crop students who are there to there because they mean business and they're serious about what they're trying to do? Well, I guess with them, I think um, the philosophy of the college, well, I guess maybe my philosophy is that rather than me trying to exert my own influence in the sense of i'm going to teach you what i want to teach it's helping them to find their pathway 
I guess. And I think that's that's always the danger of uh, of sort of assuming, well, I need to teach you this. I mean, obviously, I'll go through the physical things and, okay, you need to know this. I'm, I'm really talking more about helping them f- find their, their voice on the instrument. So when I'm, you know, when I, I see a lot of guitar players, sort of 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, and, um, yeah, a lot of them still don't really know what they want to do. And, uh, but certainly the, there are, you know, as you, as you mentioned, the, the sort of the cream of the crop, you kind of want to guide them, I think, rather than, yeah, like I said, this is my thing and I'm going to teach you this and that's it. So like I said, it's more about sort of mentoring them. And it's like, well, what, what, what players are you listening to? And I, and I try and fill their mind with all the, you know, exciting guitar players that I know about and, and ideas and, st- and stuff like that. Awesome. And yeah, it's a completely different game at that level. And I know some people can definitely, you know, vouch for only being able to deal with beginners or, you know, early, early intermediate players coming from other teachers, but yeah, not many people would actually go to that university standard or become, you know, university level teachers or sessionals or things like that. So yeah, it's great to hear a different perspective. Fantastic. Well, now I know you've got a brand new book out. And uh, it's called The 100 Essential Funk Grooves for Guitar. And I know you describe it as a journey through the timeline of funk. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about your book? Sure. Uh, very happy to. I don't know. If, look, here is this shiny, shiny copy. I don't know if this is coming out backwards on the video. but No, we can see it nice and clear. For all very, the listeners at home, you can have a look at the uh, we'll post a screenshot of it and a couple of links. Yeah, I'm super proud of this. Uh, it's, it's been a lot of blood, sweat and tears, I have to say. I mean... The 100 Essential Funk Grooves, I guess the 100 title comes from a lot of the books uh, with the publisher, which I'll, I'll talk about in a minute. Uh, they do quite a few publications where it's like 100 licks and a of rockabilly or, or whatever. And uh, essentially, this is going from the sort of birth of funk, which I've always had a love for. In fact, for me, funk probably taught me the most about groove playing playing in in this sort of mythical pocket uh, more than anything else because i grew up on a diet like joe satriani steve vai ingvi malmstein these guys shredders that's what i was super into but actually when i found when i was performing live i was doing a lot of rhythm stuff and it was like oh hang on a second i'm not actually soloing probably for less than i don't know three percent of the gig and that really got my rhythm chops uh, together so really this is the sort of culmination of all of that stuff and, uh, and all the listening that I've done over the years. So really it's starting right at the beginning, James Brown, Jimmy Nolan is like the, the godfather of, of that kind of style rhythm guitar. And uh, you know, the ubiquitous dominant nine chord and all that kind of stuff. So it goes through that journey and then through a lot of sort of seventies funk, uh, through to sort of disco, Nile Rogers, one of my favorite all time guitar players for this style. And then it really just goes through more of a timeline as you, as you mentioned before, so we end up with players like uh, modern players like Mark Lettieri, Corey Wong, so sort of moving into the the sort of modern approach to funk. Because I think when a lot of people think of funk, they think, well, one, it's easy, which is not. <laughs> Two, uh, it's like an old style, which I guess, yeah, it borrows a lot of stuff. But man, it teaches you so much about guitar playing and and listening. So I think my whole ethos for this book is is really about not sort of learning a pastiche of all these guitar players. Although that's what I've done. I've tried to immerse myself in the sound and the style and compose in their style. But I've developed all these backing tracks and ideas where students can read the book, 
and learn about theory and technique and performance and how to fit with another guitar player or a bassist or a drummer or a horn section? Where do you find space in those situations? So it's kind of very much about, well, you can learn this stuff, but then how would you apply it in your own band or situation or whatever? So that's, I don't know, does that, does that give you an idea of the, the ethos of the book? Yeah, 100%. I just think it was funny you said, uh, you know, they think funk's an old genre and then they, you know, proceed to play blues licks and blues is the oldest genre that there is for guitar players. <laughs> it's the original <laughs> kind of thing. But yeah, it sounds like a, a super in-depth guide. And um, yeah, were you sort of, did you write the book and then look for a publisher or were you approached? How did you go about um, getting the project started? Well, it's kind of an interesting story because I've, I've done this kind of thing for years. So with... Uh, with the two magazines, Total Guitar and Guitar Techniques in the UK, I've done a lot of columns, hundreds over the years, if, if not over a thousand. Um, so I've done transcriptions of songs, but also I've done lots of in the style of, because I think for magazines, the publishing is really super expensive. So if you can do a, you know, 10 licks in the style of Van Halen, rather than the actual uh, licks then it's it's so much better you can get a lot more mileage out of it so how to play in the style of someone rather than just learn their licks wrote for uh, wrote style so it was interesting because there was this sort of youtube thing that happened over the last 10 years i did this thing years ago about 15 years ago this sort of metallica pastiche and this was during lockdown this guy got in touch with me from ukraine and said, oh, yeah, this, this thing has blown up on the internet over the years. People thought it was an original Metallica track without James Hetfield, like it was some kind of demo, <laughs> which was recorded in like 2003 or something. And, uh, and it was me. And no one knew. It was like, oh, man, this sounds just like Metallica. And, it was, and, it, and we did this whole, we did, a, we did like a podcast rather like this. We were talking about it. It was really funny. And this became this big sort of viral thing on the internet. And it, and it sort of got me thinking at the time. This was about a year, year and a half ago. I thought, man, I've been doing this stuff for years. Why don't I put some of this stuff down in some sort of YouTube or book idea? And then I found these guys on the internet called Fundamental Changes, who essentially uh, are looking for, for authors, drums, guitar, bass, you name it. And I essentially pitched them an idea for this book was saying, yeah, I fancy having a look at these guitar players. I've done this sort of stuff for years. And I obviously I showed them the body of work that I've done for the magazines. And uh, yeah, that, and it sort of went from there. And I guess I started last June. And I think it was about six months of, of like I said, blood, sweat and tears getting the whole thing together. But uh, it's been an interesting journey for sure. Fantastic. So you would have um, you know, written a framework for the book, then all your musical examples you would have to compose and then go through and record them. Do, do the people that buy the book get access to recordings? Yeah, so all the recordings are free. So what I've done is provide, uh, well, everything's live. Apart, I mean, I had to program drums, I mean, within reason, but essentially guitar and drums, I provide the original track and then they've got a backing track, you know, a minute, minute and a half backing track to play over the top of. And all these are free. Once you buy the book, you get access to the website and then you can download everything for free. So. So it's all there uh, for sure. And it's, um, yeah, I think it's, it's pretty, pretty comprehensive. I mean, I did a lot of listening, put it that way. My Spotify playlist was enormous. I think I went through the entire back catalogue of everyone. So I don't know how many songs I was. but Amazing. That's amazing. And where can we find this book? 
so it's on Amazon, Amazon uh, dot, well, wherever your country is. I think it's on all Amazon platforms. I think Amazon.com and then you can get it in various countries. So yeah, Amazon is the platform and it's, um, it, yeah, it's, I mean, certainly the publisher that I work for, uh, I sort of started a relationship with them because it's printed by Amazon. It's pretty innovative as far as I'm concerned because all the other publishers that I know of, the, uh, the percentage, the royalties are not great. Um, but with this scheme, it's essentially there are no copies that exist anywhere in the world until you buy it. So you click online, Amazon prints it out. So essentially what this does is feed through into the potential royalties that you will actually get for the book, which is, which is great. Yeah. It really looks after the, really looks after the artist. Yeah. And I know from my understanding of traditional publication is you, um, you know, you get signed up with a, a publisher and they might give you an advance, but you don't really see a cent of that until the advance is paid off through your book sale. So just like a record deal, things like that. So a lot of authors think they've made it and then, you know, don't sell much books and then, you know, don't see a return on it. But um, the whole print on demand uh, approach, which Amazon is, you know, uh, doing now where that you, you know, buy it. I know at least here in Australia, like I can buy, I've bought Fundamental Changes books. I think they're one of the best series out there right now. Could can speak very highly of them, but the fact that you can buy it uh, on like, you know, I think Thursday night I was talking to one of my other teachers about the, he needed help with like a walking baseline and how to teach walking bass. So I said, oh, why don't you buy this book and have a flick through that? And then I somehow convinced myself in the five minute conversation that I was going to buy it. So we actually both bought it at like eight o'clock and said let's have a race to see who gets it first and i got it 8 a.m the next morning he got about 10 30 a.m the next morning so you know the fact we can buy something on thursday night and have it the very next day is just you know where when in history has that ever existed like that well it's amazing as well i think also because of the the whole sort of digital kindle thing as well it's like it, it, it's all it almost becomes it's so much cheaper and it's so much more available and you know you can have it on your ipad or, or whatever and uh and the fact that you've got all this kind of audio stuff with it as well is like, I mean, that's, that's yeah, I think it's great. Absolutely. You can just you buy it anywhere in the world. In fact, if you, you just need the ISBN number, you can get it printed out in a shop, I think, as far as I know. Oh, wow. That's, that's very interesting. So uh, for all the listeners there, the title of that book is 100 Essential Funk Grooves for Guitar. Do you want to hold that one up again for us, Steve? And uh, the guys can go to Amazon. I believe they can probably find links to it on your website, which will ask for a bit. And we're holding it up right now. Does it have that nice matte kind of feel to it as well? Yeah, it's kind of shiny. I didn't know what it, until I actually got it through the post. I was like, oh, yeah, that's kind of got quite a sexy feel to it. So, yeah, yeah I was pretty happy. Yeah, whenever I get the books here, I just sit there rubbing them. And I've got a couple of books, the Guitar Ninja series gets done through the Amazon printing as well. And my students just sit there like rubbing the covers. <laughs> It's really funny to watch. So guys, check that one out. But we've got plenty more questions to ask Steve. So obviously you've mentioned writing for, you know, Total Guitar and Guitar Technique magazine. How did you go about, you know, landing a position as a columnist for these magazines? So, wow, originally it was, like I said, quite a long time ago. I was a few years out of university at the time. So like I said, this is about 20 years ago. And uh, I sent in loads of handwritten transcriptions of, Paul Gilbert stuff, uh, like, like some Racer X and Mr. Big. And it was like, I was, <clears throat> I think at the time I was, I'd been reading the Frank Zappa autobiography and there's this whole bit in there about Steve Vai and how he landed this gig with the Frank Zappa band. He sent in all these transcriptions of the Frank Zappa stuff. And then Frank Zappa was like, man, this stuff is crazy in 11 and 8. And 
who is this guy? We need to get him in. I think Steve I was like 19 or something at the time. So this in my mind was a really inspirational thing. I was like, yeah, yeah I'm going to do this. And uh, so I did all these transcriptions here and I sent them into the, the magazine. And it was quite a new magazine at the time as well. And yeah, and they were like, oh, oh this is cool. You know, they would do the usual thing. There's, there's no opportunities at the moment. But I think about three or four months later, they sent me uh, a commission to uh, do a, a, a demo, a guitar demo. They sent me a guitar through the post, a really nice Les Paul, I think, at the time. Which is like great. I was like, yeah, yeah, great, and uh, and I'd obviously obviously uh, pull this money into uh, a sort of home studio. So I started recording demos for them before I did any kind of writing, and then uh, I guess probably like a year later, uh, I landed the the rock column. So there was a regular rock column at the time, and I did that for about two years, I think. And that was like I said, that was doing the a, a pastiche, you Dave Navarro one week, and then. Eddie Van Halen the next, uh, you know, the next month and, and so on. So it really went from there and, and it's, uh, yeah, it's like I said, I've been, I've been working for those guys off and on for a, for a very long time. Fantastic. And uh, you mentioned you do a couple of other publications as well. So uh, I know you haven't had any as a standout, you know, author like your, your most recent book. What, what are some other things you've contributed to over the years? So uh, I assume they're still out there, but I've done stuff for Rock School, uh, rock school, I guess you get them around the world. So rock school do uh, yeah. um, grades in the guitar. So I think I've got a couple of tunes in their books. I can't remember which grades. I did a Joe Satriani thing, and uh, yeah, I can't remember now. And I've also done some stuff for Registry of Guitar Tutors, which is another kind of grading system. Again, I don't know if that's just a UK wide. I think that one is just UK. And I've also done. I remember seeing it in all the you know guitar technique magazines. And go, man, this sounds cool. <laughs> Yeah, they had a yeah, different approach. They did this kind of linear, yeah, this, they sort of flipped the, the chord box around the other side and it was a sort of different approach to, to actually doing the grade system, which was interesting. And then I also did some stuff for, there's a company called Total Accuracy, although I did that stuff a long time ago. I did a book on 70s rock, I think. Um, and I remember at the time when I did this, this was, oh man, like 15, 16 years ago. Everything was recorded on reel-to-reel. It sounds like it's recorded even longer ago, but they always used to record on reel-to-reel tape. And I remember having to learn the Freebird guitar solo note for note and record it reel-to-reel, which I'm sure you understand means no kind of drop-ins like you can do with, you know, like a door. So that was pretty hairy, but but kind of cool. It It was definitely a good learning curve at the time for sure. That's an amazing, definitely an amazing experience there. Is there anything that sort of, you know, actions you took as a, you know, musical educator? Was it something like I have to teach in order to support myself or was it a backup plan for, you know, not being able to gig or tour? As you've said, is it something you've gotten a bit more into as you've, uh, you know, matured and, you know, gotten out of the life? Or it doesn't sound like you've gotten out of the life playing, but yeah, in terms of getting the balance of working and teaching, what's been the approach there? I guess when I first started out, it was very much... Yeah, this is something I'm good at, I think. <laughs> I'm playing guitar, that is. Wasn't sure about the teaching until I started. And I just, uh, I sent loads of flyers out to schools, actually, in my local area at the time and said, you know, hey, have you, you, know, have you got a guitar department? Or do you fancy setting up a guitar department? And that's how I got into it. And that was very much to support me and, uh, and get some rent coming in, you know, the usual kind of stuff. And I think as I sort of, got a little bit higher in the career, you know, going through the magazine stuff. And then I sort of landed some bigger gigs 
that was sort of happening at the same time. But I also noticed that a lot of guys that I knew that were doing the live thing, you know, pl- playing for sort of big bands like, you know, Eurythmics and, and so on, uh, Robbie Williams, they would come off tour and then have six months, nine months of nothing. And it's, which was always a little bit crazy to me. I was thinking, my God, these guys are doing out there doing this amazing touring work and then they've got no work and then they're sort of phoning up the guitar schools going, have you got any work? And there is none. So I remember at the time I was thinking, well, this is definitely a regular thing. I can use this to support, like, if I need to go off on tour for, for a month or two months or whatever, then I can still do that. I have, you, you sort of have this sort of um, implicit understanding with the college that you're working in. They're super cool. It's like, well, we need our guitar players uh, or musicians out there doing it so they can come back and go, yeah, you know, I've just done this tour. I'm out playing live. I think it sort of informs or sort of reinforces the fact that you're out there in the world doing it. So I, I guess, yeah, it certainly started out as a, as a kind of, yeah, this is, this is just supporting me. But I realized pretty quickly that I loved, like genuinely loved imparting knowledge, you know, that I've got. Uh, and, and, and watching other tutors and stuff as well, you know, I learned a huge amount of other, other, other teachers that I've gone along as well. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, most definitely. And I think it's, it's, it's worth drawing attention to the fact that you say you really like imparting knowledge. And I've always found that, you know, some of the best teachers I had were the ones that cared about the teaching, you know, just as much as the playing. It was something about that, um, you know, passing on the knowledge to the next generation of playing or sharing their passion uh, and using it to inspire the people that was always really, really important. I think it's also Yeah, worth- absolutely. And uh, I'll let you go ahead. I'll, I'll, <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, uh, you know, I think along the way as well, I've sort of, I've seen the, the good, the bad and the ugly as well. Uh, you know, I've experienced teachers kind of turning around in the classroom and, and, and not showing them their fingers and stuff. And I, and I was never, you know, I never subscribed to that whole kind of thing. I was like, well, you know, I've, I've developed this knowledge and, and I've got this knowledge from other guitar players. You know, I'm very much about that kind of like, well, I just, I want to share some of the love. You know, that's, that's really what it's about for me. Yeah, and there's something truly magical. I don't know, you probably had a similar thing. Like when you were 15, there was just this like excitement to it. Everything was like, um, you know, for the first time you hear, like, I don't know, the first time I heard Eruption, I was like, whoa, what's that? Like, can you even do that on a guitar? And, you know, that that excitement about the discovery and the new world of guitar playing, I think um, when you can help other people have that same feeling, that's where the magic really is. And, yeah, it's um, really interesting because I do, you know, when you see your students, yeah, with the same kind of glint in the eye when it happens or when they suddenly understand a concept. I think that's, for me, like, that's one of the things that I get the, the greatest buzz from, for sure. Most definitely. And now you're teaching at, um, I think it was BIM, the British Institute, or British and Irish Institute of Music. So how do you go about, you know, going from one, I know you mentioned a bit earlier, like a, a previous academy you worked at, going from like one kind of prestigious, reputable academy to the next. Is this something like you need to know people or be on the inside or you just rock up and audition like any other gig? I guess um, I did. Did I audition? I think, uh, yeah, before I, uh, I moved to London years ago, like 2000, 2007, I moved to London. I worked for a company called Tech Music School who eventually were taken over by BIM to become a much big sort of uh, university college complex now. But at the time, yeah, I guess it was probably networking and it was sort of sending my CV in. And I guess it helped that I'd done a couple of gigs. And I think at the time I was doing this, the, the stuff for the magazine as well. So I, I, it certainly helped to have some profile for sure, rather than just being a complete rookie. I think 
certainly I'd been teaching for a good five or six years doing a kind of peripatetic school thing. And then obviously I had a bit of profile online, uh, not online, uh, in the in magazines and stuff. So that, that really helped. And I think I sent in some tapes or CDs or something at the time. Uh, but it was never sort of standing in front of uh, someone doing an audition for sure. I think it was just sort of, yeah, I know this guy. And I mean, all the colleges, England's tiny, as you know. So everyone knows everyone else. It's like, oh, you know, you taught the ACM. Oh, yeah, cool. I know those guys. And, you know, the original guys from the ACM actually set up the original incarnation of BIM in 2003, I think it was. So they, so the, that network was all very much known to me as well. So, yeah, that, that helped for sure. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, and for any guitar players listening, aspiring players who are thinking of, you know, going to university or, you know, a college kind of uh, route, what would you, you know, advice would you give those kind of players through the tertiary, you know, progressional pathway? Advice. Uh, what I would say is I think try and fill out your understanding of things before you come because it will save a lot of time for sure. And what I mean by that is I don't mean – you know, you need to know about all different styles, but uh, it's trying to fill out your knowledge of things. So, for example, like, you know, theory, uh, fretboard knowledge, uh, scales, chords, you know, all of this stuff which is related. What, I'm, what I often find with a lot of students, I get a lot of great players who know things or concepts, um, but there are holes in knowledge. And I, and I totally understand that's what I'm there for. I'm, I'm there to help them out with that. But I think if I were to give them advice, it's to, to study the theory a little bit more and try and connect the dots a little bit more. Because uh, I think certainly through the university pathway, it's really about connecting those various streams. You know, it's like, well, if I know a little bit about most, then I can do this thing over here uh, and, and compose something using the Phrygian dominant or whatever it is. So they can kind of connect the dots a little bit more. So I would say definitely, yeah, study. Study, study, <laughs> study. And what about the guitar players who think theory is going to stifle them or somehow put them in a box or, you know, is going to make them play a certain way? What advice to guitar players like that would you have? Well, it's really interesting. I, I, I often feel like I'm going to get pushback like that, but that honestly rarely happens. And believe it or not, when I'm in the classroom, because I teach theory as well, like as a, as a, an actual subject, um, along with kind of door skills and stuff as well. And if a student ever asks that question, you actually find that the rest of the class jump in and go, well, actually, I think you'll find. And they'll, they'll just reinforce what I would have said anyway, which is like, well, rather than it being a, a barrier to knowledge, it's like what it will actually do is open up pathways into other possibilities. So I think you can have a very narrow field of understanding uh, but if you know something else it can you can sort of go oh yeah that's you know uh, like a certain musician uses a certain thing for example like last week we were talking about Kurt Cobain using uh, kind of theoretical concepts but sort of got from the standpoint of like he's definitely listened to loads of players uh, which use chromatic mediums but Kurt Cobain wouldn't have said oh yes I'm going to compose using a chromatic medium but you can use that idea and go, yeah, there's this great idea. They've listened to loads of players. We can distill it into a concept and then you can take it on board and maybe use it in something cool as well. And I think that's where they, where they really get something from it for sure, when they can actually see it in the real world, I think. 
Yeah, most definitely. And at the end of the day, the theory is just the explanation of how you create a particular sound. Or you know, if you want to have blues, you follow the rules to make it sound like a blues. If you want to make it sound like Mozart, you follow the rules that people figured out that Mozart was doing in terms of thinking. And just like a recipe, you use it to uh, produce some Mozart kind of music. So having thinking of theory as a number of different guidelines to get to a particular result, as opposed to one definitive set of things you can and can't do, is often a you know a great shift in perspective that allows you to embrace it a whole lot more. Yeah, I think you've nailed it as well. I think uh, the, the idea of guidelines rather than rules is, is definitely the way because I think if, if you know what the rules are or the so-called rules, because I guess a lot of modern theories kind of come along to explain why something works, uh, especially with a lot of jazz theory, uh, you can kind of go, well, this is the concept and this is the theory and this is the idea. And it's like, well, but look at what these guys did. They were breaking the rules. You know, you look at classical and, and romantic music, they were breaking the rules. So if you understand what those rules are and all these guidelines, then you can kind of play with them a little bit rather than just ignoring them wholesale. Uh, I think that's, yeah, that's that's very much where I come from for sure, yeah. Most definitely. Now, we are, gonna, we are getting near the end of this um, podcast here and it's been an absolute pleasure having you here. Um, are there any mistakes you've made along the way that you'd sort of... Uh, in retrospect, they you totally sucked at the time and could have been the worst thing in the world up to that point. But in retrospect, were great learning experiences and things you know you wouldn't change in hindsight. Uh, in terms of teaching, or just could be just, teaching, uh, could playing. be performing, could be playing. Yeah, across the whole spectrum here. For sure, I think uh, yeah, loads and loads of mistakes. And, and as far as I'm concerned, well, I mean, you know, there's there's plenty of theory out there which backs this up. Most of your learning comes from your mistakes. So I think. It's really, really easy for a teacher to say, well, you know, you're going to learn by your errors and your mistakes. But I think one of the things which I've noticed, uh, and this is kind of, no, you know, mistakes I've made at first is trying to assume that you're the font of all knowledge and you can impart any, you know, a student asks you any question and you need to answer that question, you know, like the guru. And there are going to be some things I don't know. And I think it's really, really important to have integrity as a tutor. So if you don't know something, be honest about it. Uh, and I think that's one of the biggest mistakes I, I, I see some teachers make is that they sort of think that they have to know everything. And I think students really appreciate it when you kind of go, oh, no, I don't know that, but I'm going to check it out and I'll get back to you next time we talk. And then, you, then they can see you as like, oh, you're a human as well. I can relate to you a little bit more rather than this being this kind of super, superhuman being and, you know, somehow you're, you're going to become, I don't know, students can't relate to that, I don't think, for sure. I think that's one of the biggest mistakes. So I always often start a lot of the, well, when I do performance classes, we always do an icebreaker where we talk about our worst gigs. And a yeah. lot of the students haven't done yeah. gigs yet. They will talk about, you know, you know, they dropped a guitar or their strings broke. And man, and I've got so many great stories. So I always come up with, you know, one of, one of my gig stories where something went wrong, like I left a capo on the first fret or something when I was doing a records label launch. And so the whole band were playing a semitone out with me. So I'll just, <laughs> so it's like some complete disaster story. And then like they can, they can totally relate to that and go, oh, okay, cool. So, you know, and then I can say, well, you know, you're going to learn from these mistakes because that's where I've done all of my learning from for sure. So you remember, okay, next time I'll go for I need to do this, this, and this for sure. That's that's what I always say for sure. 
Fantastic. Yeah, there's some, um, everyone's got these uh, shocking <laughs> kind of mistakes or these horror stories. I think uh, we'll ask the listeners to uh, post them on the Top Music Forum. We'll open up a little thread there for your worst um, gigs and mistakes. Oh, I, I think my worst one, if we're sharing, would be about three days before my year 12 VC, you know, final guitar exam in high school, I had a really bad ear infection. So I sort of, I, I did, left my guitar strap at home. So I was standing on the drum kit and the drummer hit the cymbal like right next to my, my ear. And I sort of just went, and I couldn't hear out of it for two or three days. And leading up to the exam, I'm like, oh, my guitar doesn't quite sound like it's in tune. Um, something's out, something's wrong with the backing tracks. And anyway, I thought maybe it's just my, you know, my ears are a bit off. Anyway, I get to my exam a couple of days later and, uh, I'm tuning up and I go to play and I warm up and one of the examiners goes, oh, you might want to tune your guitar. And I go, yeah, I'm pretty sure I just tuned it, but I checked it again. Yeah, in tune. Anyway, play my exam. As I go through the songs of the backing track, I'm like, it's still kind of out. And anyway, I get home and then the next day I go to, I pick up a tuner, a different tuner at home and I play it and it's like, it's out by half a step or, you know, quarter step out. I'm like, that's strange. And I went to the box that I took the exam, grabbed the tuner out, put them side by side. One was set to 440 and the other one was set to 432. And I was like, oh no, I've just played all my exam, you know, my final year 12 exam in the wrong tuning. So I still got full marks for the unaccompanied you know, acoustic pieces and some of the, the solo guitar ones, but I definitely lost marks on the, uh, the ones with the backing track. And I knew something was up, but I just couldn't quite figure it out. <laughs> And you can buy those mistakes. It reminds me, I did a I did a magazine thing years ago. One of the first, actually, I'm I'm glad I've still got the gig. Actually, I sent something in at 48 kilohertz. So when they tried to put it on the CD, which is at 44.1, everything was like uh, about a semitone lower. And I was it was like a Queen track, and it all sounded like it was slightly drunk. And no one noticed this thing. And I was oh, it was like it had already gone. <laughs> yeah, like, never again. Like you, you always learn from these mistakes, don't you? I think it's definitely the greatest learning point for sure. That's it. And, you know, even getting back to Van Halen's like Brown M&M story, every failure is, you know, an opportunity for learning. Um, you know, if you make a mistake, you know, don't make it again, put it on a list to say, you know, never do it again. So now all my students, whenever they're preparing for exams, I give them a checklist and it says, make sure your tune is set to, you know, A440, the right amount of hertz. So you don't um, make these same mistakes. But yeah, the whole Brown M&M story is because, you know, Van Halen had a thing in their contract saying the stage had to be able to support like, you know, 20 tons worth of gear or whatever it was. And then they played a venue and the, the person who organized the show didn't check that and the stage gave way under a mid-show. So, yeah, the magic behind that famous story. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's a great story. In fact, I've told that story many times. I think as well, you know, I think it's, it's important to let students know that they, they can also make mistakes when they're performing as well. And, it, and, and it's okay. I think uh, certainly a lot of students I see when they're in the performance thing, it's kind of high stakes because they're performing in front of the experts, you know, us people, but also their musical peers as well, other students. So a lot of students get super, super nervous and it's like they do an open heart surgery and it's like, okay, it's okay. We're just making music. This is literally one of the safest gigs you're ever going to do. And it's okay. Like if you make a mistake, you know, just, uh, you know, you're always one semitone away from a good note. Supposedly. So yeah. <laughs> my, okay. my advice, if you make a mistake, you know, look the look the singer look at the singer and pull a face like he did it and then keep on playing. <laughs> I think that's what Rihanna does actually to the guitar players. <laughs> yeah. It works both ways. Yeah. Really, really funny. All right. Well, we are getting near the end. Before we do wrap it up, uh, Steve, uh, where can our listeners, you know, download your book, get in touch with you, get in contact? Uh, where where should they go from here? 
So um, you can find the book on Amazon. You can also go through my website, stevealsworth.com, and you can buy the book through there. That will take you through to the Amazon channel. Uh, you can also find me on Instagram, which is Steve Allsworth Guitar. Nice rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Uh, that's where most of my stuff is. And I've got a very kind of brand new YouTube channel, uh, Steve Allsworth Guitar, I think as well. But I've not done much on there yet. So hold fire on this. I am going to be doing a bunch of videos on there as well. So what I'd like to do is move into a few more kind of online lessons as well. So that's but Instagram, website. Amazon, that's where I am at the moment for sure. So guys, everyone listening at home, make sure you hit him up. Go and follow Steve on all the social media platforms. And if his books are anything like all the other Fundamental Changes books, I haven't had, I haven't got my copy yet. I do apologize, Steve, but I'll definitely have that on the uh, the list of things. But the Fundamentals, uh, Fundamental Changes books, they are amazing. I've never probably at an advanced level of playing where you can play reasonably well. And then you're just looking for really specific kind of niche things or you know expert opinions for the you know, the $20, $30 you pay for a book to get, um, you know, six months worth of hard work and content from, you know, the the 30 years of, of a playing experience for some of these people that write these books is, you know, the, the biggest bargain that there's ever been. So make sure you check out Steve's book and follow him on social media. Steve, my last question for you is if you had to impart one final wisdom or piece of knowledge or guidance upon guitarists and music teachers listening to this, what would that be? Uh, listen to your guitar shooter. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'd say, okay, uh, in all seriousness, I think, um, I don't know, I'd say kind of, um, always be open, you know, broaden your listening palette. I think uh, definitely, yeah, listen to as much music as you possibly can, because I think you can find inspiration in any piece of music, whether it's guitar related or not guitar related. So yeah, uh, listen, 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 listen to, to everything that you can for sure. And as a, a metalhead who didn't listen to anything other than heavy metal for like the entirety of my teen years, don't make the same mistake I did. Like expose yourself to as much as you can. Any of this, there's nothing but true metal kind of cult kind of thing. Just one of the best things I did was to start exposing myself to other genres, especially as a guitar player where there's just so much you can learn from so many genres. And um, yeah, don't do yourself a disservice because a couple of years, you know, talking, we're all people now. <laughs> like you look back and go, man, I had, a, I wish I'd have been in this style of music a bit earlier or this style. And yeah, jazz actually did sound like elevator music up until about 25. And then one day it just clicked. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, I like this now. But uh, definitely great advice there, Steve, in terms of being open to as much as possible, playing as much as possible. But most importantly, listen to your teacher. I like that one too. All right, Steve, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate your time and for being so giving and for the wealth of knowledge that you shared. So guys, hit up Steve on all these social media accounts. We'll post a link to his book on the uh, whichever page you're accessing this podcast from. And guys, if you have recommendations for other guests, if you're a guitar teacher doing something amazing in the guitar teaching space and would like to come on and talk about all the amazing things you're doing, send me an email, michael at topmusic.co, and we'll get you on just like Steve. So Steve, thanks once again. Look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. If you enjoy this show and want to hear more of our work, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. For links and resources mentioned in this episode, including a free ebook on how to find more guitar students, visit us at www.topmusic.co slash guitar or check out the show notes. And lastly, thanks again for listening and we'll see you in the next episode.